Hello everyone, this is Mirko Guerrini and I welcome you to the Jazz Transcription Clinic, a monthly interviews podcast where we talk with accomplished jazz doctors about their lives, career and their personal secrets on the art of transcribing. If you want to improve at jazz, stay tuned and follow the Jazz Transcription Clinic on the socials for more content. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is being recorded. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here today. Hello everyone, welcome to the Jazz Transcription Clinic. We are back after a month rest where many things happened. Uh, I went back to Italy, I reconnected with a lot of friends, family of course, and a lot of great transcribers. And I also had the opportunity to play some gigs at the Umbria Jazz Festival in uh, Perugia. And as you can see in this short video, uh, I'm a guest with Fankov, uh, the incredible marching band uh, playing uh, almost every year, or I think every year in the last 20 years at Umbria Jazz, they are really, really great, energetic and great music. And it's funny, uh, this video, because I'm soloing here with a black shirt. And this guy here, the, uh, you can see with a red shirt, he's actually uh, Claudio Giovagnoli, who is the first guest ever in the series of podcast started uh, one year ago and uh, on the right here there is Dario Cecchini who will be uh, pro probably our next or within two months guest on the series of interviews for the podcast. So uh, I can show you a little bit of the video that uh, was made if it starts. Right. Super great vibe. Dancing in the square, really great. They all come from Vicchio and they call themselves Funkhof, Funk made in Vicchio. Vicchio is a little town next to where I used to live in Mugello Valley between Florence and Bologna. Look at this fantastic rhythm section. Right. So that was a lot of fun on the Funkoff, but uh, you know we have to keep going with our podcast. So apologize for uh, having left you in the dark for so long, but uh, we are ready now to continue. 
And on this episode, there is a new guest to the series as a young fella, a great saxophone player. And uh, he says very, very interesting things on the art of transcription. And then I will also uh, start again with uh, some new transcriptions that I make. And I will keep continuing with the series uh, practicing with Jazz Giants. So stay tuned and enjoy this show. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jazz Transcription Clinic podcast. Today is a special honor for me to guest uh, a former student of mine, or I could also say we were mutual students, as I also learned uh, a fair bit from... This guy here, he's a young saxophone player, a young lion that uh, I'm pretty sure you will hear his name uh, for a long time in the jazz scene. His name is Oscar Bruton. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marco. So Oscar um, has been, as I said, a student at the university where I teach, and uh, after talking for a while, I didn't know, but uh, he has a YouTube channel full of wonderful transcriptions. And I'm also a bit jealous because his transcriptions has a lot of views and he has a lot of subscribers. And, you know, in, in these uh, days, that is what counts, isn't it? <laughs> but um, I... I must say that with, with transcriptions, uh, if you get a lot of views, it means something. You know, it means there is a good content, is a transcription that has some sort of value, and it is well done. Uh, of course, not only transcriptions on uh, Oscar's YouTube channel, but there are also um, some videos of him playing with his band or some videos of him playing the transcriptions. So you have to check it out because it's really great, really great stuff on that channel. And I'm very happy to have this conversation today with him. Uh, so we, we had a chance to chat during classes, but uh, I would like to... Uh, our audience to listen to your points and your understanding of the art of transcription. So uh, I I might start with the first question, which is why do you transcribe? Um, well, it actually started when I was first learning jazz. I um, I was learning off the Coltrane Omni book. Um, and then I would be listening to other records and I'd want to play along to the solos, but I couldn't find any sheet music for it anywhere. So I just, just started doing, doing it myself to learn. And yeah, this is how you started, but can you elaborate a little bit why you keep doing it? Um, well... I had a lesson with um, Dick Oates a few years ago who, who told me to uh, learn the tradition of the music and the more, um, the more I learn about the people who came before me, the more it'll enhance my own playing. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've found that the best way that I can synthesize jazz language 
and sound authentic as an improviser, um, but also create my own sound is to learn as much as I can about people who came before me. That's true. That's true. And also to escape the idea that you do something original when maybe <laughs> there were few people before us that you know did it before. Yeah. You know, if we don't listen to a variety of things, and especially uh, our predecessors, um, we might fall into that mistake of thinking, "Oh, this this thing is is really new," and someone comes and say, "Sorry." <laughs> This thing has been done in 1947. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so to me, it's also, of course, to to understand the process and the development of this wonderful music style. And because improvisation is something that involves creativity at one of the you know biggest uh, extents. In music, so we need really to be careful and, and pay respect when we play also to our ancestors in terms of musicians. So, what what do you think you can bring home when you transcribe? What what are you looking for, and what is uh, the things that you want to put in your bag? Um. Well, it used to be just straight language, just copy and pasting lines. But um, I found what's more effective for me is sort of uh, trying to reverse engineer my favorite players um, and, and my favorite things about them. So um, harmonic devices and where they might have gotten them or maybe um, rhythmic devices and, and how it interacts with the band. So... Um, what I try and get out of it is um, ways I can develop my own playing in a similar way to the people I transcribe. But um, I try not to, to imitate through just copying. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I think that's right. And also, uh, you said something uh, very quickly, but I, I want to spend a minute on it. Uh, you said harmonic devices, and it's all understandable, but also how they interact with the band. So this is a great point, Oscar, because sometimes we focus so much on a single player that we might forget that when we play, we interact with the others. Hopefully, we do it. And that, that's a big part that sometimes is missed even in, you know, the academics or uh, teachers. When you, when you teach this specific style of music, it's always quite difficult to teach the interaction with the other instruments because it goes with the assumption that you already know how to play any idea that you come up with or that you can hear played by another player in the band and you can control 
your instrument to the level that you can take the idea on the moment and make something out of it. So that that's also a really good point that you look into why that line or that specific line has been played there. And sometimes it, it could be just a self-reference to what the player just played the moment before. But a lot of times you can hear that if you listen to uh, carefully to the other members, maybe you can realize that that specific rhythm was played by the drummer, you know, or the bass player a bar before. So you, you, you can understand that there is a listening component going on. And how do you study that? I'm, I'm curious to know how can you just try to understand the interaction of the um, soloist? Well, there's sort of two ways I think about it on a micro and a macro level. So I, um, I'm really big into um, the highly orchestrated jazz as well as highly improvised. Um, so just two examples off the top of my head would be Lester Young with the Count Basie Orchestra and then Coltrane with his um, quartet in the 60s. Um, so with Lester Young, it's, it's, a, it's not necessarily about responding to the rhythm section in the moment. It's more about um, developing a piece as an entity rather than a solo as its own thing. Um, and so sort of that getting rid of the ego and, and learning how to, um, how to for, fit your solo into the whole form of a song. Um, so that would be the macro level of interacting with an arrangement. Um, and then on the micro level with the Coltrane Quartet would be, um, you know, there's lots of times when McCoy might be implying a three over four polyrhythm. And so Coltrane starts playing triplets or uh, the busier that Elvin gets, the busier that Coltrane gets. And so that would be the micro level of, of directly responding to um, the other musicians who are also improvising. That's good. That's good. And uh, that leads me to ask you, how important are the notes in a solo? And are you looking also at other things rather than the notes and the rhythm? Um, yeah, well, the notes are important, but, but um, I think what's more important is the context that they're given in. So, um, you know, a, a certain note might mean something if it's in a, if it's in a different implied tonality by the soloist or the, or the pianist or the arrangement. Um, so what's more important to me is, is how that note fits in a melody um, and how it works to create tension and resolution. Yeah, that's good. And also given that I, I know you're playing a beat, I I can say that you also get a lot from the sound of the player that you transcribe because I I can hear that sometimes or even you know the mechanic of the saxophone sometimes you you play uh, some lines and 
I can understand that you use some specific fingerings because they help to get that specific sound. Uh, again, not to be a copy, but because in that moment you like to use that sound. But having transcribed a player and forced you to try to get to that specific sound, maybe it's not even the way that line was played, but it works for you. It works for you to get the memory of that sound out. So, yeah, I think also that it might be subconscious for you, but I've noticed that there is also a component of that in your playing that I believe it comes out from a very deep listening and the transcribing time that you spend. <laughs> um, I have an interesting question that uh, I'm very curious because I, I don't think I've asked you in the past is uh, how do you choose the solos you want to transcribe? Because, for example, I noticed recently you published uh, a video of yourself playing uh, Herbie Hancock solo and I also wanted to say you that even there you are using some saxophone things yes <laughs> and so I, I might go um, uh, go back to to this topic later because I, I'm interested in understanding if you if it was just you know, uh, it came up, but I'll, I'll come back to it. Sorry, uh, how how do you choose the solos? Because there there is a quite a variety of different instruments on your channel that you transcribed. Um, well, yeah, there's sort of two ways that I choose it. Um, there's one which is sort of my my jazz homework, if you will, um, which is. Um, getting really deep into the tradition of the music going back to the tens and twenties and thirties, um, which is the, you know, the Lester Young transcriptions and the Louis Armstrong and, and the various swing ensembles and, um, early jazz ensembles. Um, so yeah, those ones I choose based on what, what I think, um, sounds the best from that era and how I can understand that. Um, and then on the other side is the people who um, I go out of my way to listen to um, and who I've listened to for a very long time. Uh, so I don't know. I just, I just choose on the day, I suppose. That's absolutely fine. I mean, it, uh, it's a question that every, every single guest has responded into a different way. Sometimes, you know, people told me, well, uh, to, uh, as a, like, I choose the solos or I choose to transcribe a specific track as a job because I'm commissioned to do so. You know, mm -hmm. if I have to arrange like a song for a movie or for uh, another show, and the director wants that specific song arranged for the band that we have, I have to transcribe it first. So it's like a paid <laughs> yeah. job. So, yeah, it's interesting. And so now I go back to that thing that I was elaborating before. Uh, I've noticed that when you play the Herbie Hancock solo, 
you use a couple of times, you know, some specific uh, saxophonistic things. Uh, is that your attempt to sound like a piano or to try to get the sense of the phrase and already transposing onto your instrument? Um, I would say probably 5% of it is me consciously trying to sound like a piano and 95% is bad habits. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. There's one, one issue I always had when I, when I write a piece of music, an original composition, I always sit on the piano. I don't think I have ever written a piece on the saxophone. Uh, but this is just, a, you know, again, a, a bad a habit that comes from the fact that I started as a pianist. Uh, and so the temptation of having a bass line, the harmony and the melody, you know, sounding together. But it happened many, many times that I'm pretty happy with the piece. And then I transpose it for saxophone. I go to a band rehearsal, I try the piece, and I'm not happy anymore because that specific melody and that piece was born on the piano. And yeah. sometimes transposing to the saxophone, it's bad. It, it, it doesn't work. So it needs some sort of treatment. Uh, and sometimes I, I had to give up, like not use the tune at all. Yeah, right. Or give it to to a friend, to a pianist, and say, if you want, you can play in, in trio, but no no horns. <laughs> it doesn't sound. Um, so yeah, thanks. I remember uh, the one of the main difficulties of piano transcriptions on the saxophone is that piano is very precise, and there's never an inflection in terms of the tuning, for example. You know, there are many, many inflections from a sound point of view, from the timbre that the player is producing, but all the like scoops, approach, notes, uh, it can be only played as a grace note. Yeah. Uh, so that to me is one of the main obstacles and but it's good it's good to try to play with a very very firm tuning no vibrato at all because piano as you know <laughs> doesn't have that luxury and and so we can learn we can learn a different way to play a phrase on the saxophone that it, it would be nice to have on our palette Definitely. And by the way, uh, for the listeners, you have to go and listen to that transcription because it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, you barely can hear the piano. Uh, such Oscar is doing a great job in playing the transcription. Um, and can I ask you, what methodology do you use when you transcribe? Do you use any software? Can you elaborate a little bit on, on the process? From um, when you start to when you finish? Yeah, generally, I want to be able to sing solo top to bottom first because 
Um, I want to have it internalized and it also speeds up the whole transcription process. And then, um, yeah, I'll, I'll try and play it on my horn um, before I write anything down. Uh, and then I'll either go to pen and paper. I've done that with um, Joe Henderson's Lush Life, which is hard to do on computer notation because it's a cadenza. Uh, but, but mostly I use Sibelius to write them down. And in terms of transcription software, um, I only use that when I'm transcribing large ensembles like a big band because um, that way I can, I can isolate sections if I'm, if I'm finding it difficult to hear maybe like trombone harmonies or something. And what do you use an EQ? Yeah, I use um, EQ and panning because um, occasionally with, with a lot of Ellington transcriptions, you'll have trumpets panned hard left, trombones panned hard right and saxes in the middle. Um, yeah. But, so if you try... I just use I just use my my iTunes library for, <laughs> for, for the other ones. Yeah, so if, if you transcribe uh, a solo from like a combo recording, um, you don't even slow it down. Yeah, I, I find them, the more transcribing I do, the less I need to because a lot of the double time lines and stuff, I'll be able to sing with more accuracy and, um, and sometimes I'll be able to recognize phrases that I've heard before. But um, but I certainly used to use um, slow down apps and stuff. This is very good that you mention because one of the main obstacles that I notice uh, young students have when we try to get them to transcribe is that they find it so hard that after you know a few attempts they feel so frustrated and, and discouraged to keep going uh, but you, you said the more i do and the less i need even to like listen to it 20 times maybe after three four times you get it yeah but yeah i think the reason is that the language is a sort of one history. Yeah. So the phrase that Bob Berg is playing in a, I don't know, 1985 album is still connected to the one that Ben Webster played yeah, you know, 50 years before. Uh, maybe the sound is different. The conception of the phrase is different but you can trace back uh, because at the end of the, of the day we are still using the same 12 notes and the concept of you know tonality and western uh, music system is, is the same for everyone so that helps but also uh, I've noticed that for example if I transcribe a lot of tenor players uh, I start. I started not needing a tenor anymore. Yeah, which I still need sometimes if I transcribe a different instrument, or at least I need a starting point, because I might be 
a bit wrong, you know, on if I transcribe a, a guitar solo, hmm, that note sounds like a F sharp, but I better check. Yeah, sometimes I'm still a bit wrong. I don't have perfect pitch. No. But I've noticed that and specifically with tenor, because it's the instrument I transcribe the most, I sort of have a perfect pitch for tenor saxophone. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. So if you play a line, I can tell you the notes. But if you play it on a trumpet, I probably, probably am right, but not 100%. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so to, to me, I treat ears like muscles that can be trained and can be tra trained to a very good point. So my question is, you said you first learned to sing the solo, which is a great approach, but it can be very slow. Yeah. So does it take you long to learn to sing back? Um, it depends yeah so so if it's a solo that i've listened to um for a very long time like right now i'm working on coltrane's transition solo which is very intense and yep. and um, difficult but uh but i've listened to that for very long so i can sing through the entire solo and it's and it's not actually too difficult to or slow to write it down but if i'm transcribing you know a track that i just heard then it'll it'll take extra time but um yeah i don't know if i could do it without singing i uh yeah yeah no that's good that's such an important part to uh the transcription process yes i i'm a, a strong believer that if you can sing it you can play yeah because you have the memory of that sound so and it's in here and all you have to do now <laughs> i sound a bit simple but all you have <laughs> to do is to transfer to your fingers and to but <clears throat> i will probably make a video related to the transcription because one exercise that i started doing a lot when i was probably your age so we are talking about 250 years ago <laughs> um, was to start singing with the saxophone in my hands yeah. and singing the notes uh, that I would produce if I played, which is something that we understand and we think it's normal now, but there are, I think the majority, I can say the majority of the students can do that. So there is a disconnection um, between the fingering and the sound that we need to have. And we can create it. We can work on it. Yeah. Um, I think it also goes with the fact that the saxophone, unfortunately, it's an easy instrument in terms of the mechanic. So for most of the notes, we have one key. So one finger is designed to one note only. Yeah. And that is a good thing because you can learn, you know, to play all the notes in, I don't know, two weeks. Uh, but 
it's also a tricky one because you can get trapped that this is F sharp and you have no idea on what F sharp sounds like. Right, so I started doing, you know, even starting from scales, a lot. And I did it for, you know, hours and hours and hours. And then I started feeling that this note was not anymore F sharp in my head, but started to be a sound. Yeah. So have you have you done any work like that? Um, not not consciously, but I'm at a point now where um, where I'd be able to sing everything that I want to play, just because I think that just comes naturally with with listening a lot and um, and transcribing a lot. Yeah, and and also to me, you know, it goes with the fact that I always been jealous about trumpets and trombones because they have to sing in their head yeah and generally if you think of trumpet players their lines are always singable even a clifford brown line on on cherokee yeah it's more singable than a johnny griffin line yeah that's that's been the main benefit i think about because I transcribe a lot of trumpet players, I always I always gravitate towards their sense of melody. Yeah. Um, because, well, as you said before, the saxophone is a technically it's a very um, logical instrument, and it's a very and, digital uh, can, in terms of digit. Yeah, so you can get away with, you know, fluffing around changes, and but um, I always find that trumpet players play with a lot more clarity and and melody. Because um, they have to. <laughs> they have to. Because they have to pick the right notes in a bunch of five or six possibilities. Yeah. So you have to know what sound you are looking for. While for, for a saxophone player, it, it really can be only theory. You know, I think D major and I just play an arpeggio, but I don't know how it sounds. But I yeah. know how to play because I know the notes and I know where, what fingers... You know, produce. It's it's a little bit the same uh, problem that pianists have. You know, with uh, a step further in the trickiness of it, because the pianist also can see the keyboard, which we don't. Yeah. At least yeah, we yeah. don't. We feel under our fingers, but a pianist also see, and that's so tricky. Because you also have a visual memory of like a, a voicing on the left hand, which can be helpful. But I think one of the risks for pianists is that they tend to reproduce the same thing that they know from a visual point of view. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And start to forget the sound hmm? point of view. That's good. Um so you already responded to the next question if you write it down. Um, so I think we can move on. And this is going to be interesting. How do you practice the solos? Um, well, generally by the time that I've finished the transcription, um, 
I'll I'll already have it under my fingers. It's just a matter of technical execution. So um, so while I'm transcribing, because I'm singing it and playing it, I know it by memory, and I probably know it. Uh, well, I can sing it by memory, and I can probably play it by memory. Um, the main thing for me about practicing transcription is um, the nuance of their sound and inflection, um, things like dynamics and phrasing and articulation. Um, and that just comes from listening to it a lot, trying to imitate what they're doing with my voice very poorly because I'm not a good singer. <laughs> and then um, and then just basically um, playing it a lot. Yeah. Um, so the next question is how, and this is also a question that I received from one of uh, the listeners of the podcast. Yep. Um, how do you incorporate the ideas that you find in your transcriptions? How do you incorporate them into your playing? Um, yeah, well, as I sort of alluded to before, I try and avoid um, cutting and pasting language. I try and I always analyze my transcriptions and figure out um, at least try and figure out what the player was thinking. Uh, and then I'll create my own exercises. Like uh, I've got this video on my YouTube channel, which actually goes through my process. It's a Louis, Louis Armstrong transcription. Okay. And um, I, I try and figure out the melodic devices, rhythmic devices and harmonic devices that they use. And um, so for example, um, maybe with Louis Armstrong, he uses a, um, a lot of the time he uses a minor four chord instead of a dominant chord. And so I'll play a standard that I like. And anytime that there's a five dominant going to a one, I'll play the four minor going to the one instead. Um, or maybe it's melodic development. So I'll spend a chorus on just one idea and try and develop yeah. that throughout the whole chorus. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I, I started doing something similar when I realized uh, I transcribed some Dexter Gordon solos. I can't remember which one it was. And he loved to trick the listener's ears and play with the listener's expectations, which is a concept that I always thought it was so brilliant. And I, I started using also uh, sometimes in my composition, I like to lead the ear somewhere because we all perceive music in the same way if we grew up in a western country right so we all hear the cadenza the the cadence process the resolution process the tension and the secondary dominance etc etc so uh, learning from dexter who in a minor key for example on the dominant chord likes to play a major ninth and major 13. Yeah. Right. That's a great trick. Or on the opposite, in a major key, he loves to play flat nine, flat 13. So yeah. that way you announce the mode, but then the mode comes and, and it's the other one. Yeah, it's like a mini tears to Bickety. Yeah, um, and yeah, like and that. I thought it was really brilliant. 
And so I started doing the same exercise that, that you did. I took any standard on a major key and start playing alternate chords and, you know, leading into a minor key, even from the secondary dominant. So play half diminished on the two chord and then dominant flat nine, flat 13. Just to have that uh, thrill, you know, of yeah. announcing, yes, uh, we are going to a very sad and minor key and then <laughs> a sun ray hits uh, the music with a with a major resolution and those those sort of things uh, always got me and I try to then <clears throat> instead of as you said just play the phrases that Dexter played I, I try to develop that concept and of course other stuff like you know if you transcribe Dexter you know that there is a specific Dexter thing on the timing yeah so i will be very very interested in try to understand that and try to replicate that not because i want to use it but because i want to have it in my bag available as a color so yep i think what you brought up as well is one of the biggest things i've gotten out of um, learning people's devices rather than their language as well is that you can express emotions um much more effectively like like if you're alluding to a minor resolution and then and then play the major third you know that um you you can apply that to so many different situations more so than if you were to just play a line um straight out of a another person's solo yes absolutely absolutely right even because when we play, we are not just playing, we are telling something to the listener. And so we need to be aware that that specific line or that specific way to play triggers some feelings, some emotions. And you know we have to be aware of that. And then, of course, everyone will be inclined to apply its own personality so uh, the 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 one that is depressed will play depressed music <laughs> which is not necessarily is a bad thing you know it's it's just a very sincere and genuine outcome yeah. that comes out in your playing and that also reminds me that Probably already said it in a in a previous show, but uh, my first jazz teacher asked me to spend like three months on Lester Young vibrato. Yeah, and I get, he he was quite strict. You know, I was seeing him once a month because he was living in Rome and I had to travel. And I was young, you know, moneyless. But every time I tried, you know, the same solo, and every time he said, no, vibrato is not, is not yet what he's doing. But 
rather than teaching me how to reproduce that vibrato, I think his point and the lesson was that those are the important things. You know, forget about the fact that he's playing D. Yeah. But the sound that you hear, so the timbre, the tonguing, the airstream, the angle of the air, tooth placement, you know, all the things that are involved on the sound production on a saxophone, and of course vibrato. Vibrato is a big component, and sometimes we don't even think we we use vibrato as an automatic tool, but we need to be aware that is is a has a great impact. Yeah, hundred percent on what you play. So I think the point of that teacher was those are the things we need to focus on when we transcribe because those define your playing it's not the note you can play you know a simple diatonic line or a very chromatic and out line but in the end it will be how you play those notes that will define you as a musician that's good and I I have a uh, this question that is, is a bit embarrassing because after talking about you know very high concepts, <laughs> uh, I need to come down to the ground and ask you one of those idiotic questions that sometimes uh, even music journalists ask to us <laughs> like. What is your favorite solo that you transcribed? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I know that you can say just one, but let me force you to pick. I think if there was one solo that I've learned the most from um, in terms of, yeah, different uh, fingerings and techniques on the saxophone and, and harmonic devices and and rhythmic devices and interaction would be Lester Young's solo on Shoeshine Boy. Um, I think there's a great deal of, of wisdom and uh, influence in that solo. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So I, I'm probably going to put a link in the podcast description of that solo so you can hear what Oscar is talking about um, and what what do you think in terms of like revelation also do, do you have any solo that where you had a a eureka moment um uh, hmm. there's this Wynton Marsala solo on Embraceable You, um, where it's it's really beautiful. It's it's a ballad and it's very exposed. Um, and that taught me a lot. That taught me first of all about diminished substitutions and using the diminished scale as a as a harmonic device. Um, but also um, using twelve eight as a means of playing rather than four four. So. So basing things on triplets 
uh, and then finally about um, just this sort of brilliance of of just exposed melodies, no lines or anything, just just a beautiful melody. Um, yeah, I think that's a really beautiful song. I always come back to that one if I'm feeling. I mean, lost. Winton when 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 he plays, he he's so great. You know, on his instrument, he can really do everything. But I, I, I also have an um, an album. Uh, his is is like Standard Time Volume, I think two, and it's it's with I think a, this embraceable you solo is on Standard Time with an orchestra. Oh, standards and ballads. I think oh, Hot House Flowers. That's that one. Hot oh. House Flowers is the one with Stardust on it. Okay. Now I'm I'm talking about a uh, a different recording I have okay uh, which is uh, yeah with a with an orchestra yeah and it's mainly ballads and yeah. it's it's incredible how he plays you know even he doesn't do much soloing is no he's I, mainly I really respect that mainly yeah. playing the melodies and adding here and there. Um, some you know transitions into the next beat, but the way he delivers the melody is it's like you know a, a singer, like a very experienced singer. He he's getting you inside. <laughs> he moves things yeah. inside you. Yeah, I know. And Oscar, I have the last question for you. Uh, who is in in your opinion? Um, who did you find very hard? So, in your experience as a transcriber, the most difficult one to transcribe. The most difficult to transcribe. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually not a player. It's it's a writer. It's um, Duke Ellington. I've, I'm really interested in, in his music. I love it. But it's very dense. Um, there's this song I recently transcribed that has four or five um, independently moving voices in the saxophone section. Um, but yeah, it's a great challenge. And I think I've learned a lot from, from Ellington. That's good. That's good. We, we all had the same grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Oscar. So thanks for, for your time. It has been a real pleasure. Thank to you, guest you here and I will put Oscar's uh, website and YouTube channel in the podcast podcast description um, you can find a lot of resources you can also purchase his transcriptions on his website uh, so if you are keen to explore a little bit Oscar works and he has an, a new album coming out soon called Reverence and it will be available on all platforms. So I strongly encourage everyone who is listening to check Oscar's music out because, as I said at the beginning, we will hear him playing for a long time and we are very grateful to have you in the scene. So thanks Thank for you your time and I'll see you soon, hopefully. Definitely. Bye. Bye.